Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. This saying is as big a lie as any proverb could be. Yes, sticks and stones can break your bones. That is the factual part. But anyone alive must know that words can break your heart. Sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you. Why do we quote such foolishness when we know it is not true? Observe the damage all around by words we've heard and said. Yes, sticks and stones can break our bones. And words can kill us dead. Well, the famous phrase, sticks and stones can break your bones, was first printed in the United States in 1862 as a nursery rhyme in the Christian Monitor, which was a publication of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. It was meant to help children overcome the pain of being abused verbally and to help them learn to refrain from retaliating. So let's give them credit where it's due for a good motive. But still, in spite of the good intentions, a falsehood has grown up out of this saying. That is, that it's only the physical action that matters. Words have no power. So from out of that erroneous seed has sprung a harvest of errors, injuries, and destructive verbal sins. Now we're seeing the harvest of this bad seed in every form, whether it's an ocean of dirty language or spin and propaganda with a million streams of slander and lies mixed in, we are now as a nation a living manifestation of the truth that words can and do destroy. President John Adams said that the American Constitution was made only for a, quote, moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the governing of any other. When a population turns from God, the estrangement from him can't help but appear in poisoned speech. People begin to throw off all restraint, and wounding words fly around like bullets. In a nation like the United States, which was founded on certain unalienable rights, including freedom of speech, what was once a protection for freedom of differing opinion, which is healthy among healthy people, disintegrates into a license for spewing all kinds of poison. Now, let's be honest. America has never been without poisonous public discourse, if you know anything about American political history. Anecdotal examples are really hair-raising in some cases, and we might wonder how the country survived some of it. True as that is, the overall temperament of previous generations still did not maintain a very high level of hateful speech, and certainly no level of sexually explicit speech or blasphemy. But in our current day, damaging communications have reached a degree that some begin to cry out for both from both sides, political debate from both sides, for the government to control speech. Some on the right claim it's the responsibility of government to restrain people from speech that is obviously destructive, just as it's the government's responsibility to restrain people from yelling fire in a crowded theater. But the problem with taking that position is that it endangers the freedom of speech. So the majority are hesitant to do anything that either restrains that freedom or that gives too much power to government. They believe that the power of restraint should be not in government, but in each individual, and the scriptures agree with that point of view. So far, it's the left that is fully ready to play nanny governess government over all whom they perceive as speaking damaging words. It is not a surprise, but still an irony, that the same leftists who inaugurated their purposeful destruction of Judaic Christian culture with the so-called free speech movement hear that as filthy speech movement, are now the first to squawk loudest about dangerous speech. These are the same people, remember, who fully supported any and all speech in film, television, music, or print, no matter how vulgar, blasphemous, pornographic, or subversive to the public good, even for grammar and middle school children. The dangerous speech they want suppressed is not vulgarity. No, they love that. It's not hateful rhetoric against our founders. They applaud that. It is any speech that takes any position which they do not happen to agree with. 
we can never successfully shame this hypocrisy because those who practice it have no standards to live up to, so they never fear the label of hypocrite. Their purpose in controlling speech is motivated by only one guiding principle, and that is to overthrow their opponents by any means necessary, no matter how immoral, and then to keep control by, among other things, suppressing the free course of ideas, and most particularly Christian self-expression. They have to do this, you see, because they know they cannot compete in the free debate of various ideas. They would certainly lose, and so they must suppress the truth. All other forms of self-expression, like crucifixes in a bottle of urine or condoms on the White House Christmas tree, or saying President Bush should be shot, that's all freedom of speech and what the founders meant to uphold and protect. Any who wish to fly the American flag or pray in public or protect their children from being mentally molested in the public schoolroom by any number of perversity peddlers disguised as educators, well, those are dangerous extremists who need to be either barred from the public square or, even better, put into re-education camps, since we're not quite at the place where they can force us into such camps then they force people into sensitivity training classes, which are the same as the camps, just without a place to sleep. Like their predecessors of political correctness, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, whose picture, Mao, that is, was also on the White House Christmas tree, along with the condoms. These proponents of free speech movement are never interested in freedom of speech, but the control of speech to be certain only their point of view is heard. It is the easiest thing in the world to become so enraged at obvious and repeated displays of this sort that we explode, or worse, we implode. In other words, either we spew out our own kind of curses, or we give up speaking truth to evil. In either way, evil wins. If those on the right are not godly, if those espousing, quote, God and country values and values is a problem word we will examine in a moment. If those on the right do not truly live in the reality of what we espouse, love for God and for people, manifesting his character, then the debate between left and right just disintegrates into a mere carnal contest between two equally fleshly human opinions with power, not freedom, as the ultimate goal. Since the foundation of the politics of the right was originally based on transcendent principles rooted in the natural law and ultimately in the revelation of God in the scriptures, then it is only grace that can manifest real freedom and only a godly people that can maintain that freedom. If those on the right try to live only off the capital of conservative truths of the past but do not keep the love of the truth as a renewed currency, by living lives that are in line with those truths, we become worse than overdrawn, even worse than bankrupt. We become hypocrites. And since the opponents of the right never worry about the danger of hypocrisy as a label because they have no transcendent truth and therefore don't fear exposure for duplicity, they easily make mincemeat out of the right when the increased hypocrisy of the right becomes dangerously apparent after all, keeping up appearances in order to maintain the political support base doesn't work anymore. The bank vault is empty. Only an infusion of grace can resurrect the energy needed to support real life again. Now, beside the bankruptcy of the right, there's the problem of the proclivity of fallen sinful nature in all of us that bends toward the corrupt practices which most of the left champions. For instance, dependence on large and ever-growing government to feed the ever-increasing appetites of an increasingly indigent populace. Freedom from responsibility coupled with freedom for every form of self-indulgence, including the propagation of children that we can kill if the child is inconvenient or simply unwanted sex in all forms and in all places and with all ages now, with no responsibility or restraining ties like marriage, 
Unless, of course, it's same-sex marriage, then all of a sudden marriage becomes vitally important, while for the rest of the population, marriage is an option. Perversity displayed as art. And it's no contest who will win in a tug-of-war if the only participants are on the one side, godless leftists, and on the other side, pseudo-religious people of the right. As long as the opponents of the left live with a secret affiliation with the evils of the left, with no core of reality upholding its platform, there is no force in play to stop the inertia towards evil. All the rhetoric of the right that says all the right things, but lives in opposition to the truth, will only speed up the rotting out of the once real and solid core. Culture will slowly but surely disintegrate into first licentiousness, then lasciviousness, then lawlessness, and end in legalism of tyranny. Legalism is the offspring of lawlessness because lawlessness demands tyranny in order to maintain outward order, but that's too large a subject for us right now. Country music offers many examples of the real goodness of life just like God intended. But sadly, and increasingly lately, it also displays some of the worst of the core-rotting duplicity of the right. Many songs celebrate sloppy irresponsibility, slavish obedience to the lowest adolescent levels of behavior, adultery, drunkenness, fornication, betrayal of vows. But it's all okay as long as somewhere in all that there's a tip of the hat to the good Lord and equally, as if they were equal, to the red, white, and blue. We can disobey God, dishonor Him, even use His name in vain, just as long as at the end of the show we can sing a good old gospel song. This impotent parade of right-wing hypocrisy is more destructive to the cause of freedom than the more obvious evils embraced by the left, simply because the values of the left are the disease and the claims of the right are supposedly the antidote. If the antidote is a hidden poison disguised as medicine, the dying patient hadn't got a prayer. When the left rebukes the right for draping itself in the American flag, while ignoring the destruction of the Constitution via things like the Patriot Act, or turning a blind eye to crony capitalism in its ranks, how few of the people on the right say, yeah, you're right, you're accurate in your criticism, and we need to change it. It's evil, too. Those who do are being persecuted by the entrenched right-wing leaders, showing that at the rotted center, left and right, is basically the same political animal. When we oppose them only in word, devoid of truth, we become a greater detriment to good than the left is. And this is the problem with the constant use of the word values. Now, I don't mean to dishonor my friends who use this term, because I have a lot of friends who use it. Values, when speaking of what we're fighting for, you hear it all the time. It's understandable how such words can gain center stage. We pick them up from one another and think they're accurate communication tools. We know what we mean when we say values. We mean that which has temporal meaning for the good, but which also reaches into the eternal. We mean that, but that's not what values means. And words mean things. Many on the very front lines of the current battle for truth use this term regularly, and they have my undying support and respect. Still, we need to try to explain why this term family values or Christian values is a tactical error in strategic use of language. In an essay by Gerard Reed on virtue versus vice, he quotes James Hunter from a book called The Death of Character. I quote, We hear much talk about the need for values, the restoration of values. But values are a human measure we place on things, just as we price goods in a store. Values are mere concepts that have no commanding character related to them. They are former imperatives that have dissolved down into a range of now just mere possibilities. 
The very word value signifies the reduction of truth down to mere utility. What was taboo is now just fashion. What was once deep conviction is now preference. All provisional and exchangeable, both value and lifestyle, speak of a world in which nothing is sacred. To have a renewal of character as a nation or as an individual is to have a renewal of a creedal order that constrains, limits, binds, obligates, and compels, not just values. Strong communities of faith incubate strong character. In time, perhaps, such small communities, such groups of people could shape such a culture of character again. We lament the loss of virtue but lack the means to develop its qualities. So we replace the power of virtue with the impotence of values. Let's break this down. He's saying that the word value has no real value when it comes to describing the belief system of a successful people because value changes with the whim of the times. Value is under the control of the prince of the power of the air. Remember the stoikikos in Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, the elemental spirits of this present darkness, Ephesians 6, 12. These are the demon spirits of this age who are in control of the trends and fashions and passing fancies of this present world. To speak of retaining our values is accidentally, or maybe on purpose, to be verbally giving in to the instability of a democracy concept rather than solid foundations of a republic. A democracy is based on majority rule and is easily moved by every wind of current pop culture. Whoever is in control of the pop culture becomes the controller of the political direction of the entire nation via movies, billboards, TV, news journalism, advertising. No wonder democracies don't last long. But even some of our highest-level right-wing leaders don't seem to know the difference between a democracy and a republic. No wonder why. They are in the grip of the winds of the age. A republic is not based on pop culture and majority rule. It's based on established, agreed-upon rule of law, and such law as is revealed from heaven, the natural law among the Greeks, and the Torah among the Hebrews. People who are committed to a republic, even if not fully Christian, have the at least sane awareness of self-evident truths which cannot be negotiated. No killing, no stealing, faithfulness in marriage, care for the weak, the poor, the defenseless, for children, and for the aged. In other words, what it means to be simply human There is not only shared values, but shared and deeply respected virtues, which are not negotiable. These can sustain a civilization in spite of the brokenness and failures which are inevitable in all fallen human interaction. Such a people are able to live in the good of reason, and therefore will not check with the whims of the times to see which way the winds are blowing, nor will they simply follow their own fleshly desires which may be stirred up in a given moment. People under such law are happy, free people. They're happy because they have boundaries. They're free because they have limitations. These boundaries and limitations give them a place to safely live because they are not pulled by every whim imaginable. They can rest limited space given to them not by government but by divinely revealed law reduces their options and makes living a manageable possibility. The old saying, less is more, applies here. Limited options increases capacity for the pursuit of those options. Mutual agreement means we can live beside our neighbor with confidence that we all share understandable common language, common meaning, Submitting to this rule of law is freedom for maintaining the common good. Israel learned this first. We see it in Isaiah chapter 58 where God says to them, If you will keep your feet from breaking my Sabbath, my my limits, and doing your own pleasure, 
not speaking your own words or doing as you please, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high places of the earth and to feast on the inheritance of Jacob. Now, still greater than what I'm describing, greater than a secular republic of law-abiding citizens, is a holy healing community of spirit-filled believers in Jesus from every kind of race, nationality, ethnic, culture, or economic level. Their diversity of human experience doesn't divide. It enhances their color and life and energy. They are neither left nor right, but subject to what is above, because what is above has come down into them and is forming in them the very life of God. This is called the church. Such a people are not subject to whims of culture, though they may express many variations of cultural forms from black gospel music to Bach oratorio, from all day singing and dinner on the grounds to a high mass, from veggie tales to Dostoevsky. There is many tribes, but they are all Israel. They are not primarily politically motivated, but kingdom motivated. Such a people will seek to obey not a value system, but will live in virtue, which is a supernaturally supplied energy of grace which aligns our lifestyles, desires, behaviors, and appetites, as well as governs our reactions to evil with the character of the king of the kingdom. We don't get there perfectly or quickly, But if we are his, we will be on that road making progress in that direction in which godly character can be nurtured and the spirit of the world, the flesh, and the devil resisted. In this way, we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And our king prayed that we would become this so it will happen. That's the most exciting part of all. Read John 17 and the whole book of Ephesians for scriptural background to that. But how will that happen? How will his prayer come to pass? How will we come to the place where we, the people of God, are truly a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a set-apart people who show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his glorious light? 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Yeah, I know, we already are all those things positionally. But with all due respect to that glorious fact, it's not enough to satisfy what God wants. It must be manifested in the earth in such a way that it generates the very thing it describes. Notice this, a chosen generation. What's a generation? That which generates. What do they generate? They generate life. How do we generate it? By the next phrase, a royal priesthood. What is a royal priesthood? It's those who stand in the gap and intercede. We generate the life of God through our intercession for the world. And as a result, we become the the next one. A royal priesthood becomes a holy nation. We become a, a counterculture, a completely different culture living in the world that is under the aegis of the powers of darkness, and we are manifesting light in the face of that darkness and wholeness in the face of that culture's rot. This is the call of the church. This is what we were supposed to do. This is what Israel was called to do for the pagan nations in the previous covenant, and we are to carry on that same work. In our previous study called The Deplorable Word, we closed by listing what happens to a nation or a culture once language is cut loose from its moorings in godliness and reverence for God. Let's review it here for the sake of clarity. The loss of God's rightful place among us leads to the loss of language. Our lips become our own, or referring back to Isaiah 58, We speak our own words and make our own culture minus God. This loss of truth, loss of language brings us to a loss of truth. The loss of truth means a loss of reason. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes, as it says in Judges. This loss of reason manifests itself in a loss of sanity and reality. An atmosphere of so-called diversity 
begins to arise. But it's really not diversity. It's really adversity. The loss of reality then begins to manifest itself in a loss of cohesion. So-called diversity, politically manipulated, is for the purpose not of manifesting diverse points of view, but of destroying the one true point of view, and this is the cause of the loss of cohesion. Then disintegration begins on every level, which results finally in the loss of freedom. Loss of God, loss of language, loss of truth, loss of reality, loss of cohesion, loss of freedom. Psalm 144 seems to be a very contemporary commentary on what a nation must have in order to maintain its identity before God and before other nations. David begins by thanking God for teaching him how to effectively do battle. Then as you read further on, you encounter prayers to be protected from the hands of strange children. I always laugh when I read that. Many Sunday school teachers may have held on to that verse. (laughs) But it's not referring to weird third graders. It's talking about foreigners, but not merely those from outside the country. That would be contrary to the heart of God. God loves the entire world, and we are to do the same. Israel was commanded to protect and care for the stranger who is among them. To care for the foreigner among us and treat them with compassion and justice is the basic principle of being a Christian. So obviously this is no nationalistic rejection of those who are different from us. He's referring here to those who enter the country with the specific purpose of taking life and giving death, of infiltrating with evil and destroying good. The reference to their right hand being a lie has to do with the political falsehood with which they gained entry into the country. Does that sound familiar? Now, for those who have a vision of the American or British culture being a light to incoming hordes from non-Christian cultures, I'm all for that. But a false, impotent, backslidden church will never be such a light. And so far, we've not seen a great deal of evangelical influence turning the invading hordes of strangers into subjects of the kingdom. But what if God intends that that be the very thing that happens? What if God intends that the very pressure brought on us by the infiltration is part of a wake-up call to his people? Proverbs 10.5 says, those who sleep in harvest time are ashamed to their father. Even if we are under a current chastisement period, in order to humble us, cleanse us, make us much more obedient to kingdom truth? What if the current invasion of the land of Christendom is a shaking wake-up call to we who have been asleep in the harvest? What if that shaking is in order that a fully awake, godly people will rise up, take our invaders captive with the gospel? I'm praying for nothing short of that. The only alternative is to sit back and watch us be eaten like a corpse covered by army ants. We are the people of God. Maybe this will make us rise up and act like it. I don't know how far-reaching or dramatic the shaking will have to become to accomplish this level of awakening, but whatever it takes will be worth the result. Psalm 144 ends by describing a godly people whose, quote, daughters are like pillars who hold up the house of God and whose sons are like life-providing plants at harvest. It ends by describing a land where there is, quote, no breach in the security of the borders and the streets and the city centers have no traumatic screaming, screaming whether from violent protest or from terror attack, Then it closes with the joyful phrase, happy is the people who are in such a state. Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. So how can we reverse this dangerous trend we just looked at? Well, (laughs) by reversing it. Simplistic as that may sound, it's doable and it is the first step toward a much greater good to come. But if we do nothing, But what we've always done, 
to quote the cliche, we just keep getting what we've always got. If we cannot see it in the culture, then can we see it in our church? If we can't see it in our church, can we see it in our home? If you can't get any cooperation in your home, how about dealing with you? There's always some place where you can begin with God and he can take what you offer and multiply it. So what is it that you offer to God? What is it that I'm saying we've got to do? Well, bring our speech to the Lord and ask him to put the coals of holy fire off his altar to our lips in whatever form that may mean for us individually. I've been confessing my sins for the last two hours in this study. So let me transfer on to you to get the heat off of me. Maybe your lips haven't been like mine in sinful overreaction. No, maybe yours have been in sinful underreaction, quiet in the face of evil when you should have spoken, or maybe gossip, or maybe being double-tongued, saying yes when you really mean no, friendly to people's faces but verbally abusive behind their backs. We will examine some of these kinds of sins of the mouth later, and I will find myself just as guilty in those as I've been in the previous studies. So anyway... How do we reverse this scenario? We restore the honor due to God, which brings his presence, which is life. That restores the sanctity of holy, godly, truthful language, which speaks life. This will restore the speaking of truth, which strengthens life, which restores the atmosphere of reality, which is conducive to life which brings cohesion and unity of heart, which is the function of life, and that manifests freedom, which is the celebration of life. Don't think this is too far from the possibility of reality. I've already told you it's not a matter of if Jesus prayed for this. His prayer will be answered. How it gets answered, how long it takes, I guess in some ways depends on how seriously we take what we're talking about right now. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 4 through 8, it says, You saw what the Lord did with the Baal worshipers. He destroyed them from among you. God will destroy the Baal worshipers from among us by delivering all of us from every trace of Baal Peor. But anyway, let me continue. All of you clung to the Lord your God, and that's why you're alive today. So I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. Observe them carefully, for they are your wisdom and they are your understanding. The nations around you will say of you, this is a wise and understanding people. How is it that the gods are so near to them in all things they call upon them for? Now, although, of course, these verses deal with Israel's natural establishment in the land, the principles revealed here do not change according to time or place. Those who think this has no application to either the church under grace or to modern Western governments should read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 with reference to the church and Psalm 9 verse 7 regarding the pagan nations. The Word of God is not a mere history lesson nor is it a Jewish book meant only for one nation so that the Gentiles can take it or leave it. Before we examine more this issue of the body of believers as a kingdom community of hope and healing in the earth, I want to explain two vitally important points that will need much more clarification in the future, but which must be introduced here before I can really make any sense about what I'm trying to say. First, I believe there is no political hope for America or Great Britain or any of the Western democracies. I do not believe any party or man or woman or group of political activists can restore what has been lost to the West. That is no claim on my part to any supernatural revelation from heaven given to me. It's simply the result of reading the Word of God and watching the movements of history and of current events. If a political position could restore what has been lost to us, transcendent goodness, then it would mean that transcendent supernatural goodness, which we have lost, can be recovered by mere human energy, and it cannot. What has been lost is not on the human political plane, so it cannot be recovered on the human political plane. 
What has been lost is grace and can only be recovered by God's intervening grace. So that actually means there's hope because it means we're not left to the sheer impotence of human energy. The people of God are already covered by grace and equipped with grace and can set in motion events which God promises to bless with grace. All of the promises of God are already answered yes and amen in Christ. And through us they will be manifested. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. There is every reason according to those great and precious promises to believe God for the full manifestation of his grace upon and through the church. I mean the people of God, not a mere human organization that calls itself church. That brings me to the second point I need to insert here. I'm not referring to the blessed hope, which Paul speaks of in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Our blessed hope is, of course, ultimately the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, at his second coming. He's always our hope. For those of you who believe in the popular scenario of pre-trib rapture, seven-year tribulation, and second coming, I truly respect your views. I don't quarrel about them with anyone, but I have not fully embraced them for over 40 years, and I tend to believe them less and less as I live and study and watch the flow of things. If I'm wrong, I'll be happy to be wrong. I long to see the Lord, and I long for this present evil system to meet its annihilation, so the sooner the better. And however he guides the close of the age, it will be for the greatest possible good. In the meantime, it's our calling to manifest his kingdom in the earth and fight evil. If the typical end-time scenario of Antichrist taking over the whole world is not the complete scriptural story, if there's other points of view we've not taken in consideration, then it's possible to greatly alter our end-time point of view from an escapist mentality to an occupying mentality. I don't mean that all those who adhere to a pre-trib rapture are escapists. I know many who are not. But let's admit that such doctrine must influence some, even many, maybe most, to let the world just go to the devil because we're all going to get out of here any minute. Maybe in future studies we can examine this subject in far more detail. I think we need to. But let me get back to the main focus of this study, which is, in case you've forgotten, our mouth. The previous two hours of this present study deal with the danger of misusing our mouth and thereby exalting evil while failing to manifest the good. We are still on that subject, but in order for us to grasp the next phase of it in a context that will make sense, we must accept, regardless of our end-time view of the rapture, etc., that whether he comes for us in the first watch or the midnight watch, or the final watch before dawn, we are to be ready and we are to occupy till he comes. A great part of our being ready is not only cleansing ourselves of everything that defiles us from flesh in flesh and spirit, Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, but also living in a level of love and unity with other believers in Jesus that the church has never been very good at doing. The days of the denominations are coming to a swift end. The days of judging a person by labels they wear are just about over. We're on the verge of a renewed Pentecost. Not some event outside the scope of Scripture and historical Christian experience, but on the contrary, a coming back to the truth of Scripture so that God can pour out upon us His intended purpose, which is the fullness of life in Christ manifested to the world and to the principalities and powers. See Ephesians chapters 2 and 3 for that. That can all sound very majestic and cosmic and exciting, and that's because it is. But the daily mundane earthly outworking of such a vision does not happen in the cosmic realm, but in the drudgery of everyday life. And nothing shows the measure of where we really are in relation to its fulfillment more than by how we treat each other, and nothing shows the measure of that like how we speak to and about each other. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation in which you were called, 
with all humility and meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice you don't you don't achieve the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit is already in unity with us, and we enter into that with the Holy Spirit. We keep the unity. We maintain the unity that's already there. There's one body, one Spirit, even as you have all been called into one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and in us all. Psalm 133 says, How good, how blessed it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's like the anointing oil that flows down Aaron's beard onto his entire garments. There the Lord commands the blessing, even life forevermore. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 25, talking about a body of believers who are walking in this kind of love and unity. It says that the pagans will say, quote, God is among you for real. Do pagans really say that in many of our churches? Well, let's don't go there right now. This is going to be a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Babel means confusion, chaos, clamor. The division of languages at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 10 was the disunifying event that brought the humanist enterprise to an end. God's kingdom coming to us is the reverse of this Babel scenario. Rather than confusion and strife resulting in disunity and scattering and collapse, we see in Acts chapter 1 verse 14, the 120 are meeting together for some say 10 days. 10 is symbolically the number of testing. What was the test they were undergoing? Well, it says that at the end of the days, regardless of the number of days, they were all in one accord and in one place, chapter 2, verse 1 says. Now, if you know human nature and you read the stories of the Gospels, you know that like all of us, there had been many conflicts among the disciples. It's safe to say that they did not just arrive in Acts chapter 2 already in one accord. They had spent days in prayer together. And there must have been many issues they had to pray through over and with each other. Think of Mother Mary alone, not to mention any divisions among the others. These men had abandoned her son in his darkest hour. What, what were they praying about all those days? Think of the squabbles among them in the gospel story. And these are only a few of what must have taken place. Whatever it was, they prayed through into a place of complete love, forgiveness, and unity of heart. And just as Psalm 133 says, quote, Where there is this kind of unity, not of organization or of mental assent or dogma, but unity of heart in love for Jesus and for each other, there God commands the blessing, life forevermore. And it was there in this unity of love that the Holy Spirit came in power. And in a miracle of redemption, God reverses the curse of the Tower of Babel, where the division of languages at Babel had dispersed and disunified, confused people. Now tongues of holy fire set upon each of those in the upper room, and they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them the words to say. And in this diversity created by the love and presence of God, all the nationalities present were unified in hearing and responding to the gospel. For more on the danger of unforgiveness and disunity, see our CD series called Spiritual Warfare, Preparing the Church for Battle. Now when I speak of a new Pentecost that I believe is coming, this is what I'm referring to. I'm not talking about some new manifestation of strange mixtures of spirituality and some not-so-spiritual displays. Not a new movement headed by some figurehead or organization, not a new denomination, but a unifying outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon a people from all backgrounds and no background, from all denominations and no denomination, from all countries and no country. We will be humbled by whatever chastising correction and shaking may have to come to bring us to a place where all we want, no matter what it takes, no matter what it costs, 
is that God comes down upon us, among us, and within us. Again, Psalm 144, God rend the heavens and come down. What they did in that upper room in order to prepare for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is what we must also do. They desperately sought God and ruthlessly sought out any leaven or unloving, unforgiving, slandering, backbiting among them. And like those preparing for Passover, which was the type of Pentecost, they purged out the leaven in order to make ready for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Leaven, in 90% of scriptural references to it, is pictured as sin, as that which grows in the dark, hidden places and reproduces itself in everything it contaminates. Slander, gossip, backbiting, false accusation are probably the most common manifestations of tolerated, if not even encouraged, leaven among the people of God. If we're to see the kind of outpouring of the Holy Spirit that it will take to deliver us from the babble of this present system and bring us into the level of unity and love where God is able to, quote, command the blessing upon us, and set tongues of fire upon us, which purges away the false and sets aflame the true, the flame that both enlightens and cleanses, then we need to take a hard, long look at some types of sins of the heart and mouth that maybe we've never taken seriously before. You ready to do it? Well, (laughs) I don't know if I'm ready or not. I'm still having to face my own sin as I offer these words to you. But we have no choice. I, don't have, I have no choice. You can turn the machine off, but I don't think you will. I mean, we've already addressed cussing. It may be the least offensive form of sinful speech to God, depending on the circumstances, believe it or not. The ones we have yet to examine may be far more repugnant to God based on what we see in Scripture and from ancient Jewish wisdom. The Hebrew phrase, Lashan hara means the tongue of evil or the evil tongue. Lashan, tongue, hara, evil. Then there's shmirot ha lashan. This is to gird your tongue or guard your tongue. It's meant to represent those who take very seriously avoiding lashan hara. A gossip decided he needed to repent of the evils that he'd committed in his slandering and gossiping and backbiting and spreading tales. So he went to the rabbi to find out what he could do to put things right. The rabbi said, well, go home and get a pillow and bring it back to me. So the gossip, a little befuddled, went and got the pillow and he brought it to the rabbi who then said, take a knife and cut it open and then go spread all the feathers inside of it all over the town and then come back to me. So he did, not still understanding what's going on. When he came back, the rabbi said, now to repent of all the evils that you have perpetrated, go pick up every feather and put it back in the pillow. Of course, the gossip got the point. It was not possible to, quote, take back what he had done. Yes, it's forgiven. Yes, God is merciful and will forgive us. But the idea that we can, quote, take back things we've said, it's a phrase we all have used since childhood, and it's a childish phrase, one that mature people should not use. You can't take it back. The only thing you can say to someone is, I sinned against you. What I said was wrong. Please forgive me. There's so many categories here we could look at. And my gosh, we all know stories. We've all been perpetrators and victims of this. And that's, I guess, what makes this so difficult. We all are so familiar with it. And yet to be so familiar with both sides of it, we continue to treat it so injudiciously, unwisely. There's criticism, there's backbiting, there's slander, there's gossip, there's lying, there's purposeful misrepresentation while not lying. Didn't lie. I just strung things together in such a way that the lie was still communicated. There's the sin of communicating information that is true but unnecessary. 
We'll look at that here in just a bit. Let me just talk a little bit about criticism and backbiting. And I want to tell two stories. And the reason I want to tell these two stories is because I happened, by the intervening grace of God, to keep my mouth shut in both of these situations. That doesn't mean I was guiltless. It just means for one brief moment in time, Clay didn't talk. And I was so grateful that I, that, that I just happened to keep my mouth shut. But years ago, when I was on a staff of pastoral leaders, I was a young young pastor in an in a early ministry. We dealt with a number of people from many, many backgrounds because we, we worked with a military uh, near a military base, and a lot of our ministry was with military. And there were people from all kind of walks of life, and people with particularly, particularly difficult, troubling backgrounds. And their woundedness manifested itself in their daily life. And so we were supposedly caring for and guiding and helping these people. But in one of those moments of unbearable self-indulgent stupidity. Some of the team, prayer or pastoral team, started discussing this one particular young lady who was part of the fellowship. And they had developed a nickname for her. Now, the very development of the nickname was sin. But it led to a much worse sin, which led to an even worse sin. They They joked about how some people are a thorn in their side, but this particular woman they called Rosebush. And they would only refer to her as Rosebush. Had there been any mature leadership among us, somebody would have shut this down before it ever got started because it's not funny at all. But we were young and selfish and stupid and arrogant. Stupidity and arrogance are a terrible combination. Well, while they were laughing and guffawing about Rose Bush one day and uh, describing her in a way that anybody would recognize who she was, unbeknownst to them, she was standing right outside the door and heard the whole thing. It was not fixable. She left in tears and she left the church and we lost contact with her and was unable to reconnect with her she cut off all communication with everyone who she had known at the church. If you feel the weight of the tragedy of this, on the one hand, I'm sorry to put that on you. On the other hand, I'm happy if it burdens you because maybe it will keep all of us, all of us, me first of all, from ever sinning against one of God's children or anybody for that matter in this way. That's, uh, that comes under the heading of criticism and backbiting, but it, it, may, it comes very close to slander, which we'll talk more about in a minute. Criticism and backbiting has to do with, yeah, maybe it's valid information, but does that mean you have the right to use it as a, a means of demeaning a person? Maybe they are unstable. Maybe they are poor parents. Maybe they do a terrible job of keeping a, a balanced checkbook. But uh, that's not to be the subject of pastoral conversation. And let me just say this to any of you who are in pastoral leadership. You must guard this with all your heart. Whenever some soul under your care becomes the topic of information around the table, if you find it uh, to be a subject that frustrates you, then you need to take it into prayer. If you find it to be a subject that angers you, you definitely need to take it into prayer. And if you find it to be a subject that you make light of and joke about, and I don't mean this to, I mean, we all have funny stories we tell about people. We just got to understand you don't tell those stories in a way that would injure them. Would you tell it if they were in the room? And would you say the things you're saying in the same spirit if they were in the room? Listen, you know, here again, I'm talking about stuff I know so well, not because I'm Mr. Holy and did it right, but because I'm, an, I'm a fool who did it wrong. 
And uh, I, I know so many times. That's why I'm so happy to tell you these two stories when I happened to, t- to keep my mouth shut. I happened to not participate in the rose bush conversation. Well, that doesn't pin any roses on me, no pun intended. But then the second time was years later. I was in a conference and I was sitting at a table with a, a number of pastors, all my senior and maybe that's why I had the good sense to keep my mouth shut because everybody at the table, about five of us, were all seasoned pastors with graying hair except me. And somebody brought up uh, the name of a well-known pastor who, if I named him here, well, in fact, I think I will name him because he's with the, he's going to be with the Lord, but... Uh, there was a pastor named Dr. Gene Scott. I, I had the privilege of meeting and working with Dr. Gene Scott in Los Angeles years ago. I was on his program, television program, and I, I loved him dearly. He was a genius, ling, linguistic genius. He, he knew the Semitic languages uh, better than anybody I, I had ever encountered up to that time. And... Uh, but he he was a, he he was an oddity in that uh, he went through a period of of uh, trouble when he would go on television and he would stare in the camera and he would uh, cuss and he would say outlandish things and nobody understood why he was doing it. But this this drew a crowd. I mean, you can imagine the Los Angeles crowd that this drew, and so the church just grew and grew and grew, and uh, it's still being carried on by his widow, who is also a linguistic master. And and uh, some of the finest teaching I ever heard in my life was done by Dr. Scott on the atonement and on, on the, the centrality of the cross. And uh, he, he'd do these marvelous teachings, and then he'd, he'd look in the camera, he'd wear top hats and have a cigar in his mouth, and he had these steel blue eyes that just penetrate you. And he, he would just... Anyway, I don't want to tell too much about Dr. Scott. But we're sitting there at this this table and all these pastors are telling all their stories about crazy Gene Scott and lunatic Gene Scott. And it got to be more and more it went from funny to slanderous to to destructive. You know, just put down. Well, there was a, a an elder statesman sitting there at that table named Des Evans. Des Evans is pastor of a major church in the Fort Worth area. And I just happened to look out of the corner of my eye and Des Evans, there was tears rolling down his face. And uh, everybody got quiet when they noticed those tears. Boy, was I thankful I had been quiet. And I, I knew Dr. Scott, you know, I could have told my own stories, but Des Evans said in that Welch accent of his, he said, Gene Scott is my friend. I love Gene Scott. Gene Scott was the best man at my wedding. Nobody at this table has a clue what happened to my friend Gene Scott, how he was mishandled medically and given medication that caused him to have a mental breakdown from which he is recovering. And then, boy, I mean, there was hopefully real repentance around the table. Here again, I'm so thankful that I didn't have to repent. But it was only that I didn't have to repent of saying out loud. I mean, I, I had other things I would have, liked to have thrown in to, to sound cute and to gain an audience because I mean here I am this young guy with all these older statesmen around the table and I'm one of the few that's known Gene Scott and been on his TV show and I could have just well let me tell you my story thank God I didn't oh my lord let's move on quickly slander slander is murder slander is speaking that which is not provable, nor probably even true, but we're passing it on to win our own argument at the expense of another's reputation, and in God's eyes, it's murder. Gossip 
is also murder. The rabbis asked the question, which is gossip most like, theft or murder? The answer, murder. But murder not of one, but of three. It kills the subject of the gossip, it kills the hearer of the gossip, and it kills the speaker who communicates the gossip. Passing on true but hurtful information or passing on damaging information unnecessarily comes under this category. Things like, and we are all guilty of this. Oh, he's a great guy, but I don't know if I should tell you this or not, but he's also so forth. You know your own version of this. Then there's what the rabbis refer to as evak lashan hara, the dust of lashan hara. This is not necessarily evil speech, but so close to it, it's the dust of it. When we laugh at a statement that was meant to ridicule, even if the subject of the ridicule is not in the room, we're sinning against that person. Or saying something that will cause another person to speak badly of another. So what's the latest gossip on old so-and-so? Asking leading questions that we know will lead into Lashon Hara. Then there's only one other category we have time for, and that is what was called Banat Panim, whitening the face. This is to speak publicly of someone in such a way that causes them great shame, causing their face to go pale like death.